From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the program, we welcome Gilbert Rose, executive director of Terra Wildlife. With eight miles of Mississippi River frontage and 9,000 acres of oxbow lakes and bottomland hardwood forests, Terra is one of the nation's ultimate destinations for deer and turkey hunting. Also, with the upcoming spring birding weekend, we'll talk about how Terra Wildlife is keeping its commitment to the natural resources of Mississippi. Join our conversation this morning. The phone number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show. It's animals at mpbonline.org. You're listening to Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the program, we welcome Gilbert Rose, Executive Director of Terra Wildlife. With eight miles of Mississippi River frontage and 9,000 acres of oxbow lakes and bottomland hardwood forests, Terra is one of the nation's ultimate destinations for deer and turkey hunting. Also, with the upcoming spring birding weekend, we'll talk about how Terra Wildlife is keeping its commitment to the natural resources of Mississippi. You can join our conversation this morning. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464, or email the show. It's animals at mpbonline.org. I always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so uh, Libby, you uh, had a couple of events that you wanted to mention. Oh, yes. Um, and I guess an extension of last week when Molly Focus was here from Audubon, from the coastal Audubon. Turnfest is Saturday, May the 5th from 10 to 3 in Jones Park in Biloxi. Okay. And it's a great it's opportunity. It's in Gulfport, I think. Yeah. Is it? Oh, is that Gulfport instead of Biloxi? I think Jones Park Let's is be, in Gulfport. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> on the coast. Oh, there we go. <laughs> and uh, it's a good chance to learn not only about least turns, but about all kinds of things on the coast. And there are, you know, there's food and music and lots of educational stuff, too. All right. Museum of Natural Science has got somebody down there. And then Adam Ronke, and we have to do a shout-out. He, Friday, he's getting his Ph.D. All right, very good. State, and he wants us to know that he's having another Master Naturalist class starting May the 15th and running through June the 8th. For those eight weeks, they meet every Tuesday from 9 to 3 and uh, have a good many outdoor field experiences mixed in. They're going to have, there's a trip on the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. They may be going to Terra. I'm not sure where all well, they're, they're going, invited. but. Like yeah, so it's really fun, but you do have to register ahead. It does cost, it's I think, $200, but that includes some food and all kinds of great things. And Master Naturalist at uh, Extension Mississippi State. If you Google Master Naturalist Extension Mississippi State, you'll find out all about it. Okay. 
And that's, uh, as we mentioned um, previously, that's some, somewhat similar to the Master Gardener kind of uh, yes. program that you can go through. So if you're yeah. someone who's interested in, in the outdoors, that would be a, a good thing to consider doing. And I've done it. I've been on the teaching end of it. And then after I retired, I went and took the whole class so I could see what everybody else was doing. And it was fun. <laughs> So uh, we're going to be talking today about Terra Wildlife with the President and Executive Director, Gilbert Rose. Gilbert, thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me. So um, I think anyone who hears you knows, obviously, you are not originally from Mississippi, uh, moved from Australia to the U.S. in 1990, and have been with Terra since 92. Uh, have you always had a love for the outdoors and wildlife? Uh, yes, I uh, grew up in Australia for the first uh, forty odd years of my life, and uh, in the north western part of Queensland. Um, yes, yeah, so it's the outdoors has always been an interest. Uh, for for someone who's never been there, like myself, I know you know you see things on the internet, and there's always seems like to us Americans sort of exotic creatures and wildlife there. How would you describe uh, Australia's uh, outdoors and wildlife? Um, it's very different, very naturally different animals. Um, the, um, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, um, I don't know that there's any, apart from the, some of the, uh, neotropical, uh, birds that come through at this time of year, they'd be the only thing that would rate with our very colorful parakeets, parrots, uh, a lot of the tropical birds, uh, um, waterfowl, some of those are very similar to to what we have here. Okay. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, Terra Wildlife. Uh, again, for those that might not be familiar with it, uh, how would you describe it? Where is it exactly in, in Mississippi? Um, Terra is situated uh, northwest of Vicksburg. It's about 35 miles by road um, just because of the rivers and the Azu. Um, but it's 11 in air miles. It's only about 11 miles from Vicksburg, the center of Vicksburg, but about 35 miles by road. Uh, you take 61 north uh, to you just after you cross the uh, Yazoo River, and we're situated in the Eagle Lake community on the west side of the Eagle Lake community. And we, um, how big is it? Um, it's just on 9,000 acres. We have two properties, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, Terra, and which is about 7,700, and then Halpino, which is uh, around 2,200 acres. Not, they're not contiguous, but uh, there's very little, it's about 600 acres in between the two properties. And so um, we mentioned in the opener, you know, a, a great destination for turkey and deer hunting, but I imagine that's not the only sort of audience that you're trying to reach. Uh, who are the people that, that visit the wildlife and, and kind of, you know, what is, what's the purpose, what's the, what's the goal for Terra Wildlife? Um, I guess the, uh, the goal is to manage its natural resources in a sustainable and both an economical manner. Um, uh, the consumptive side of our operation is uh, both deer and very little turkey. Turkeys have suffered a, a lot from the constant uh, prolonged flooding we've experienced over the last eight to ten years, and we no longer have a huntable population. It would take a few good nesting seasons for um, for that to uh, ever go back to a hunting popula- huntable population. But... Um, we um, ha- our hunting for white-tailed deer is all archery hunting. Um, we have a clientele that stretches pretty much the whole east coast of uh, 
of the United States and uh, probably west to Texas, some from Oklahoma, but the majority are from the, uh, the East Coast. Um, well, the biggest percentage, I guess, the uh, higher percentage would come from Louisiana, Mississippi, and then uh, all points uh, north and east of there. And uh, in addition to hunting, I guess, are there hiking trails, that sort of thing, for f- folks who are naturalists, like to enjoy the outdoors? Yes. Uh, when they're accessible, if the river behaves itself, there's <laughs> uh, uh, a wonderful uh, road system on the, uh, on the, between the levee and the river. Uh, but then on the protected side, uh, yeah, we have uh, probably about five miles of trails, roads that people can uh, walk. It's unfortunately they're not in great shape right now because we've uh, experienced flooding on both sides of the levee system this year. And um, but we're going to be walking them Saturday. They'll be walking them Saturday. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to me uh, because uh, our studio is physically located right near uh, the Pearl River, and it's not great. But there's an area there that you know when the when the river is high, it's underwater, and when not, it's not. And I've always thought it would be interesting. And is it challenging to to manage a wildlife area when you have the unpredictability of of the Mississippi River involved? Not really, because you you can't fight it. You've got to accept it some stage in your life and and understand it and work with it. Work with it. I think what has become a little bit more of an annoyance, uh, we seem to be experiencing more flooding um, in the last, I think we've only missed one year since 2008 that we haven't had a flood. And I would have said prior to that that, uh, you know, we experienced probably six out of every 10 years we had significant flooding, but it seems to be pretty much the norm now. And then the water's coming earlier. In the, and, you know, we used to say, you know, it, it would be late April into May, uh, but now it's nothing to expect flooding February, March. When you flood, this is water that's coming all the way down from snow melt, yeah, I guess, right? Yeah, it's uh, the three main river systems that affect the Mississippi uh, are the Ohio, the Missouri, and the, uh, and the Arkansas. And uh, and when you uh, when you get a, a, a flood like 2011, um, that's caused when those whole those three rivers all peaked at the same time, and uh, they pushed an, pushed an unprecedented amount of water down the river. Uh, we're going to take a break uh, in just a moment, but first, uh, before we do, let's get one uh, email here that we have in for Doctor Major. Uh, it says, I recently adopted a shelter dog. He's been doing amazing on his leash, except when we get to a busy intersection. He decides to turn around and bite his leash and engage in a game of tug-of-war. He won't stop even when I tell him to. I'm worried that he'll bite through the leash, and either he or I will end up in the traffic. What could be causing this behavior, and how might it be corrected? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I would say that probably some prior experience that this dog had uh, concerning traffic and or uh, if that's the only time he does it when they come to an intersection or either. And one of the problems with shelter dogs is we don't always know the history. And uh, this dog may have had a traumatic experience. I would work with the dog. As far as the leash, I don't know what size dog this is, but as far as the leash, it might be good to have a uh, the, uh, what shall I say, the upper the part that's attached to him to have a chain mm-hmm. where he couldn't bite through it. Uh, I would work with a trainer, though, just somebody that can identify why this dog is doing it. I don't have any real insight to tell you uh, uh, as far as why he's doing this. 
somebody listening may have, but I think it has to do with prior experience. And uh, I would locate a trainer in your area and uh, talk about it with them. And in a situation like that, uh, dogs can be retrained if, if you get the proper assistance, someone kind of who knows what they're doing to. Absolutely. And uh, we just don't know why he's doing this. It sounds like he's fine, uh, except for this, this type of situation. Yeah, it might be, who knows, the traffic noises, that sort of thing. But uh, definitely help uh, with a, a professional trainer and, and kind of correct that behavior. Because based on the uh, the email, it sounds like otherwise he's he's doing just fine. I know my, my large dog, uh, when traffic is coming, she's always looking at it. Uh, she doesn't ignore it. And, uh, you know, you see people walking their dogs, and they could care less whether a car or a truck is coming by. But she... Uh, she's 95 pounds, and she she will turn around and, and look at it just to be sure. I don't know if it's a protective thing or what with her. But uh, uh, it's not a problem, but I do notice that she's very aware of, of traffic. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we will continue visiting with our guest today. It's Gilbert Rose, Executive Director of Terra Wildlife. Also, Dr. Major is here, so we'll take some pet questions. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We'll be back with more after this. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Harfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today we are visiting with Gilbert Rose, who is executive director of Terra Wildlife. So if you have a question about that or a question for Dr. Major, you can give us a call this morning. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, we've got a phone call, and on the line is our friend Sue from Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Go ahead, please. Good morning. I'd like to ask uh, Mr. Rose. Uh, uh, I had a friend from Australia who wrote a book about uh, the smuggling of exotic birds from Australia, and uh, I, that's the first that I had realized that, that, that such a thing was going on. This was years ago, and uh, then yesterday I heard on NPR about the smuggling of radiated turtles, so-called because they have a radiation pattern on their back, radiated pattern. Yes. And I'm just wondering if um, the, the book about the smuggling of birds from Australia was so horrific, I had no idea that that, that kind of thing went on. But I want to ask, is there any, anything in Mississippi that's exotic enough that the birds or plants, flora or fauna are are smuggled out of Mississippi? Yes. <clears throat> and I, I hate to talk about too much specific because I don't want somebody to know, I guess, but we have uh, several species of rare reptiles, snakes and turtles, that are collected worldwide, and it is uh, there are always federal investigations going on, to be honest, because um, – there, there's like a, a a nasty underbelly to the pet trade, absolutely. And that there's a black market for rare things worldwide, mm. and I'm I'm sure birds are at the top of the list, but reptiles are also. And reptiles can be concealed easier than birds, so I think that it's harder maybe to detect when those right. kinds of things are being transported. One of, one of the things to realize is that probably. Uh, I don't know the latest statistics, but probably only 25, 30 percent 
of those animals make it. There's so many that die uh, en route or because of yeah. how they're carried. So it's something we really need to be aware of. And I, I know what you're talking about with uh, some of the reptiles here that are that are rare are considered to be collectible worldwide, mm-hmm. and we need to be uh, aware of that and on the lookout. Yeah, if you if you know if, if I guess if any listeners see people collecting quantities of anything, it, sometimes it needs to be investigated. Okay. And yeah, those the people that do that kind of thing are not humanitarian about it all. No, They're, it's it's a money making yeah, prospect. A- and I guess if if they have twenty snakes and two of them live and are get are sold, they're fine with that. Yeah. All right, uh, Sue. Thank you for your call. Let's uh, move on next. We've got uh, Allison on the line from Clinton. Good morning. You're on the air. Go ahead, please. Oh, good morning. Um, I have a ragdoll cat who is actually turning thirteen years old today. And um, she's having an issue that's new for her where she has a lot of sneezing and sniffling and drainage. Um, in the beginning, it was more like a little cold. But at this point, going to sneezing fits, and she will expel mucus that's yellow. And sometimes it's like pink, like it's blood, blood tinged. And it'll get wherever she, in the area where she's sneezing. I know it's not kind of gross, but yeah. um, she just can't keep it in. So I want to know what you think I should do about that. Is this a new thing you said? She hadn't been yeah, it's new. She had... She's never done this okay. before. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she's 13, so, I mean, she's never really had any health issues. Right. She's been great. Mm-hmm. Have you added a new cat lately? No. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Uh, I was thinking in terms of some sort of infection that could be happening, but I would suggest seriously that you get her in to see your vet. It may okay. be that uh, an endoscopic exam into the nasal passages needs to be done possible she could have an obstruction there uh or it may simply be a matter of a sinusitis that can be treated uh with antibiotic but this is something that's new and certainly could be serious from the standpoint of the fact that you're even seeing some blood uh blood tinge fluid so uh, get her into your vet i will will do that okay well thank you so much have a great day you're welcome Thanks for the call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with Gilbert Rose, who is executive director of Terra Wildlife. Uh, that's just north of Vicksburg. Uh, so if you wanted to ask uh, Gilbert a question about Terra Wildlife, you can give us a call. Uh, if you want to share some recent wildlife experiences that you might have had, you can call in as well. And Dr. Majors here, ready for pet questions. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We've got some open phone lines, so give us a call and join in on the conversation. Uh, so, Gilbert, if you would tell us a little about the, the history of Terra Wildlife. How, how long has it been around, and um, how did it all get, uh, get started, I guess? Um, it's been around, as far as we can trace, back to about 1857. Oh, wow. Um, and... Uh, but uh, really up until um, the mid-'80s, um, I think it was really, really wasn't utilised in any way, um, neither farming. I think there was some land cleared uh, back in the late-'50s, when soybean prices were uh, high in the 12 to $14 range. A lot of land was cleared. Um, unfortunately, timber wasn't of great value in those days. It was pushed up and burnt, and... Uh, and a lot of, uh, in our part, uh, well, we sort of the lower delta, um, a lot of that low ground is just, uh, it's really still its best use would be in, in timber. Um, 
But uh, Terra was formed in, uh, actually formed in 1987, and uh, Mrs. Bryant, when she first, she inherited it from her second husband. Um, in the mid-80s, they decided to uh, open up a hunting operation or uh, build a lodge and have a private membership. And that started in 1987 and went to, ran until about uh, 1994, 1994-95, uh, um, when uh, the uh, membership, private membership was abandoned and uh, we opened it up to, uh, to, uh, to the public on a per diem basis. And uh, uh, from that stage onward, uh, Terra's always been archery hunting. Um, it's... Um, the um, it was a little bit of farming, um, but uh, in the mid '90s, when we did, abandoned the private membership, um, it gave us the full use of the facilities uh, for 12 months of the year, and and we looked at other uh, operations that uh, would utilise the infrastructure outside of hunting season, and that's when we embarked on a, sort of a, it's an umbrella group of just non-consumptive activities, and it was a very it was a shotgun approach uh, to see what would be attractive to to the public, but um, we found very early on that it uh, lent itself to uh, a, a lot of environmental conservation issues, and um, we've attracted, I guess, most conservation groups that operate in the south have been to Terra and had many uh, productive meetings over the years. Um, but it's, um, you know, outside that we have um, a variety of other groups. I mean, it can be from accounting firms to law firms to, uh, men, uh, you know, uh, public uh, agencies um, to, um, uh, you know, workshops that we do for, um, well, we host, I should say. We uh, provide the facility, but uh, we do workshops for... Um, um, for you know, in uh, toxic spills, response to toxic spills on inland lakes and rivers, um, but it's a, a fairly unique uh, uh, environment. I mean, you've got your accommodation, you've got your meals, you've got your conference facility, classroom facility, and then you've got that huge, big laboratory out there in the open. And uh, um, it's uh, they can be in the field uh, five minutes from the classroom and. Uh, doing any sort of uh, exercise they like, whether they're collecting bugs or doing a bat survey or whether they're uh, um, uh, netting, mist netting for birds or uh, uh, want to uh, put a boat in and demonstrate how to, uh, uh, how to recover a toxic spill. Uh, is it mostly day-by-day things or are there uh, like overnight accommodations, lodging, cabins, anything like that? Yes. Um, uh most of it we encourage the overnight because uh, people are staying and using the, the facility to the full extent. But we do have groups that come in just for a day meeting. But, no, they um, we'd have five or six-day workshops. And I could imagine uh, you mentioned you know, account, accountants and lawyers and that sort of thing, and, and I would imagine professional groups like that, if they needed to have a place, especially for a retreat or something, that what just a wonderful uh, surroundings that would be and, and sort of maybe a chance to uh, do decompress after maybe some uh, interesting uh, seminars or, or things that they might be attending. Yeah. Um, well, I think one of the unique features about it, other than being in a very, in an outdoor environment, is that um, 
every user group has a captive audience when they're there. It's, uh, they're not like being at the Holiday Inn where you, or, or in town somewhere where there's an array of restaurants or, or bars where people can split up into their own little groups. People are forced to interact a lot more. And I think, uh, you know, I think all of us that have been through meetings find that some of the most productive aspects of it are the interaction um, through a social hour or over a over meal or something like that. It's outside the classroom. People are more interested in a one-on-one dis- discussion in a, in a close-knit group. It really feels more like a retreat mm-hmm. than, a, than a meeting. Yeah. yeah. We've got some calls on the line, so let's begin again in Osaka. Kathleen has <laughs> called in today. Good morning, Kathleen. Well, good morning, guys. Uh, he answered about half my question, so that's good. Uh, I just wanted to know, as an individual, or say, like, if I went with a friend, could what what would be available to us? Do they have some place they could stay? Is something to eat, or do they have a like a tour, or I hate to say, a guide through the wilderness kind of thing? Ooh, this weekend would be the time to come, Kathleen, because there's all of the above. Yeah, yeah, there. Oh, Libby's right. There's two events that we have uh, a year, and they're both birding events. One is the spring birding weekend, and that's uh, happening this weekend. And then we have one, uh, we call it the Mississippi River Nature Festival, and that's in August uh, when you can see a lot of the you know, wading birds, woodstalks that, that are... They're, um, you know, moving up the river as these mud pools along the river dry up or, you know, get down to a wading uh, elevation, I guess, for those birds. Um, so you see them in, in quite, can see them in quite large numbers, but there's been years when the, the wonderful thing about wildlife, I, we think it is anyway, there's always a mystery to it. You may see them and you may not see them today. Mm-hmm. So, um, Well, but, let me ask you this. Do we have, uh, is it some kind of... Um, Plain, plain and simple. Do we have to dress uh, appropriately? Would that be advisable, like jeans and not dress up, right? Uh, the more casual you want to be, the better. But yes, dress for the outdoors. Uh, you know, if you're allergic to um, poison ivy or anything like that, I, I would suggest you wear long, uh, long trousers, uh, outdoor shoes. Everything's very casual. Um, and we're pretty laid back. Uh, group so uh, it's not hard to uh, entertain yourself and you can participate to the level whatever level you like just sit around the lodge and watch hummingbirds and uh, um, Baltimore Oreos feeding around the lodge uh, or you can go out we have uh, tours during the day um, we'll do an early morning one for those that uh, like an early coffee and uh, uh, to go out to uh, try and catch the sunrise and then we'll have one uh, after breakfast, and then we try and do one again in the afternoon. Um, and then normally one on Sunday morning, and everyone leaves late morning. But to go back to answer your question about cottages, we've, we've never been a bed and breakfast. I think we've been more, we have cottages that, um, that we can rent out to, to any uh, you know, groups, um, and they vary in size from one that can accommodate four couples uh, to another uh, lodge or another a cottage that'll uh, sleep about twelve, uh, and you can pretty much entertain yourself. There's uh, nature trails. You can, uh, um, if the group is certainly does. It's not economical for us to to drive around the woods with two people in a in a in a modified school bus. But if there's twelve. 15 people in a group, uh, it's worthwhile for both. It's uh, cost-effective for us, and it's cost-effective for the, for the end user. 
I, I have friends that use it as a, a kind of a, f- a family get-together two or three times a year. Mm-hmm. You know the family I'm thinking about. Yeah. They bring in. It's it's easier, I, get, I think, to get all the grandkids there, right. and there's something for everybody to do. So they use it like that and just rent it. They just rent that big cabin. For yeah, them, you know, yeah. yeah. But right. it, sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I think sometimes when you talk about a birding event, people uh, – that have just got a casual interest in seeing what it's about and don't need to be threatened by the fact that you have to be a serious birder. You really don't have to turn up with a pair of binoculars and a, and a, uh, and a couple of bird books to feel like you're inadequate if you can't identify a bird. I mean, I'll follow you around and I'll, uh, I'll make you feel comfortable pretty quick. <laughs> okay. All right, uh, Kathleen, thanks for the call. And, uh, by the way, the, wild, uh, the uh, website terrawildlife.com if you need more information about some of the things that are offered at Terra Wildlife. It's time for another quick break. When we get back, we have calls waiting from Don, Chris, and Joe. We'll get to those calls and your call as well if you'd like to join the conversation. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. And we're back on Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you've missed any of today's program or want to listen back to it, you can always subscribe to the podcast using any podcast app, or you can download the MPB Public Media app. Also, if you want to join our conversation this morning, give us a call. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 or you can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. And a couple of days ago, we did get an email from Sally uh, who asked about uh, some birds in her backyard. And thank goodness she sent us a picture. We're always asking for that because it's very helpful. And we have determined that, yes, Sally, you do have some indigo buntings in your backyard. So it looks like you've got a number of uh, feeders set up there. So a great place uh, for uh, to attract some birds to watch. Uh, we've got some phone calls on the line, so let's begin again with Don in Jackson. Good morning, Don. You're on the air. Go ahead. Uh, good morning. Um, I wanted to ask, what is the best way to uh, keep snakes away from your house without hurting the snake? Uh, I don't know if that fits into your program this morning, but since you're doing wildlife, I thought you might have some information on that. Yeah, that's okay. And I would say um, clear out any places for snakes to hide and be sure that you don't have a source of snake food such as mice and rats close by because if if you've got a brush pile where there are mice living you're going to have snakes coming there and they'll feel comfortable because there's a place for them to hide um you know i i love to see snakes in my yard but um, I don't. I don't want. I've had them slither in the door before with me, and I don't want that. So you don't want to have places that are too close to the door, uh, so that they can, you know, hide. Um, using a whole lot of mulch and having vegetation low to the ground right by a door does give them a place to to scoot in, if that makes sense. So you know, mowing around the the perimeter. They they prefer to be in unmowed grass, definitely. Mm. All right. One one of the most maligned snakes probably is the, uh, quote, chicken snake, rat snake. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those uh, 
some people think that they've got a copperhead or a rattlesnake in the yard, and there's a variation in color and pattern on some of those. And uh, the good thing about it, they're there trying to catch your mice and rats and whatever. I think they eat frogs too. But anyway, it's uh, it's a good thing in a way to think about it. I realize you don't want them right at your doorstep. But at the same time, Libby's absolutely right, uh, removing some of the low vegetation and not creating a place for the food source. So that's good. All right. And, uh, Don, I believe from past experience we have determined that mothballs are not effective uh, in limiting snakes. But uh, just kind of keep the uh, area mowed down, I think, is your best bet. And mothballs are really bad for your pets. You don't want your pets to be (laughs) playing with the mothballs. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure they're too good for humans because I remember no. as, as a kid, you know, just the smell of those things. It's like I, they're awfully powerful, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so, Gilbert, uh, you mentioned before the break about uh, the spring birding weekend at Terra Wildlife this weekend. Uh, if folks were to go up there, what, what ty- are some of the types of birds that they, they might be able to see this time of year? Um, you're going to see, of course, they obviously highlight so you're you're uh, Baltimore Oreos, uh, indigo buntings, um, the painted bunting. Of course, that probably is the, the the king of them all, the crown and the jewel. But uh, as uh, Libby's husband mentioned a few years ago, he said you need to take that bird off your advertising material. We never see one. Oh, uh, that's not true. <laughs> I see them. <laughs> I know we do, but uh, we did change it up and put a um, the Baltimore Oreo on. But uh, we're seeing a lot of. Uh, uh, painted bundings this year. I mean, when I say a lot, we've, probably, we've you could see them from the office just feeding on the, on the lawn and uh, amongst uh, with a few indigo bundings. But uh, yeah, I don't want to tempt fate, but you're <laughs> almost certain to see orchard Oreos and Baltimore Oreos and summer tanningers. I see a lot of summer and, tanningers yes, right now. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and think- indigos. Uh, sometimes I'm hoping for Dick Sissels and. Bobolinks, what do you think? Yeah, my eyesight's not that good trying to <laughs> pick those little ones yeah. up. But um, I, I don't know whether it's uh, just because of the habitat, uh, you know, so much of it being underwater in, in our part of the delta right now. But we're seeing big concent- or bigger concentrations of uh, birds, like indigo bundings and that, that uh, I've never seen them in those numbers before. And do, am I saying the population's on the increase? No, I think it's more to do with just uh, you know the minimal habitat that suits them at this time of year. And Bruce Reed is going to be leading the bird trip. Yeah, right? and Bruce. Uh, he's a he's a, a, a frequent guest yes, here on the radio yes, show. Yes. Yeah. And and I think uh, the point that you made earlier, I think, adds to the excitement as you said. You know. You, there's no guarantees, and you know you might go out one day and see something, and go out the very next day and and see a totally different set of of, of creatures. So, uh, yeah, that's why it's good to stay there. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you're going to see different right. birds each day. Yeah. Uh, and also, too, uh, the point I, that you made, I think, is good. You know, uh, in your backyard, you might see three or four, but to see just large flocks of the birds, I think is, is very impressive. And it's something I don't think a lot of us would see, you know, in our everyday lives. So, uh, and that's coming up this weekend. Is that right? That's correct. It's uh, Friday afternoon through till mid morning Sunday. Okay. Uh, back to the phone lines we go. We invite this time, Chris, who's called in from Starkville. Good morning, Chris. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. Um, I had a question about outdoor cats. Um, you heard, uh, last week you all were giving, uh, someone advice about, taking care of an outdoor cat and 
my understanding is that outdoor cats kill a lot of native wildlife. Yes. Should we keep our cats inside? That's my recommendation is that cats stay in. Troy, what do you think? Right. It's, it's, it's one of those things that uh, I guess people have their own personal preferences. But, yes, uh, in, in theory, definitely they do kill a lot of uh, songbirds and other wildlife. And I would suggest that responsible cat ownership, you would keep your cat inside. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, also, Chris, I would say, you know, uh, really for the safety of the cat, you know, when cats go outside, there are there's traffic, there are other cats, uh, that sort of thing. I, right. I know I, you know, we talk to our pets like they understand, and I maybe they understand some stuff, but not. But every time my cat goes to the door and looks out, I'm saying, you don't want to go out there. You're inside here. You have a nice, soft bed. You have someone that feeds you all the time. You go out there, you know, you're competing with all the other cats and, and uh, that sort of That's thing. That's a good so, point. You know how cats fight each other? Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's a dangerous world outside for cats, exactly. and they make it dangerous for birds as well. But it's so I just think it's better for all concerned if you have a nice place for your cat inside. In general, uh, outside cats are short lived compared to inside cats, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the reasons is the cat fights. Every neighborhood has a rogue cat that stalks around and will pick on other cats, whether it's uh, a tomcat or a, a female cat, but we see a lot of cat bite uh, infections, and quite often they can be debilitating. So in answer to the question, yes, it's better to keep them inside. I think in that case, they had this cat that they wanted to take care of that had been outside, and we're wanting to know the best way to take care of it. Okay. Uh, we've got uh, Joe on the line from Tippa County next. Good morning, Joe. Go ahead. Hey, I got <clears throat> I got one of those terrible outside cats. <laughs> okay. <Uh-oh. laughs> But she came to my house a couple of years ago. I have no idea how old she is, but I took her and had her neutered. But she's definitely an outsider. And, uh, but I noticed late, recently uh, she will lay, lie down, extend her head out, and cough. Just lay there and cough for a while. And I don't know whether it's uh, she's trying to spit up something or whether it might be some other condition that caused her to do that. Right. And she's doing that fairly consistently. Well, not all the time, but just every few days okay. I see her okay. do it. You know, it could be any number of things. Uh, I don't know how much of a hunter she is. One of the first things that comes to mind is cats that hunt she, crawfish. She mainly sits on my front porch okay. and hunts for her food. <laughs> well, she's she's a good cat, I'm sure. Yeah. And I uh, commend you for having her fixed or spayed. Uh, and that is one thing about the outside cats, the feral cats. Unless somebody's taking care of those and having them spayed and neutered, they multiply like the proverbial rabbits, uh, and they can uh, have quite a number of cats pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, the thing about it, I was going to say that some of these cats that hunt crawfish uh, can pick up a lung fluke and can. Well, be... I don't think she's around any crawfish. Okay. I live up, up in the hills, up on the hill. Right. right. So... Other, other than that, uh, I'm not sure if cats can have asthma a type of asthma, and there can be other things as well. You indicated you didn't have heartworm. It certainly is possible, and uh, cats are susceptible to heartworms, and we recommend on the outside cats to have them on a heartworm preventive. So I would suggest talking to your uh, vet about that uh, and see, see if he can determine why she's coughing. Yeah, well, she's she's not she's not an overly friendly cat. Okay. If I catch her, I, you know, she doesn't fight or bite or anything. But 
when I walk out on the porch, usually she jumps off the porch. Right. <laughs> but right. I, when I feed her, I, I can handle her then, you know. But well, I know you're trying to take good care of her, and I would try to get her in. Collar on her and things like that, she's no problem. Right. Try right. to get her into your vet, okay? All right. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Joe. You. Uh, yeah, you're, the cat is always your best friend when it uh, comes feeding time, that is for sure. Uh, Libby, before we go to this next break, uh, you've got a Fanny Cook event coming up. Yes. Um, Kathy Shropshire, who does the portrayals of Fanny Cook, is going to be doing a presentation in Bay St. Louis at the Hancock County Library for lunch. It's a lunching for, with books kind of event again, and the, the biography will be there. And Marion Barnwell and I will be there to, to sign books if you want to. But you don't have to buy a book to come and listen to Kathy. And uh, there are lunches available there to purchase, and it is May the 8th, so this coming Tuesday. It starts, I think, 11.45. Okay. But anybody, any of our listeners on the coast that would like to see Fanny Cook, it's it's a fun event. It's, uh, the presentation's about 30 minutes. Okay. And, so that would fit in a lunch hour. Yeah. All right, let's take one final break. When we get back, uh, we will continue our discussion about Terra Wildlife with our guest today, Gilbert Rose, who is the executive director. Also might be able to work in a pet question or two. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Back to wrap up the show after this. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. This hour, we've been talking with Gilbert Rose, who is executive director of Terra Wildlife. Uh, uh, we've got some time left if you'd like to work in a question at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Here's another email to share uh, that we got this week. It says, uh, my name is Tori. My family runs a bed and breakfast in Clarksdale. We have foxes that live on the property. One of the large foxes that we've seen regularly appears to have mange this year. What should we do? Is there some that we could contact about catching and treating him? Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, there may be a miniature chupacabra in the making there. Uh, the, oh, yeah, uh, they can look really pitiful right. when they get it. They can. It's going to be difficult. One of the things off-label that we've used for demodectic mange, which this probably is, or sarcoptic, is a product called Brevecto. It's a flea and, It's proof for fleas and ticks. And I would say that if you could get this fox to eat that, uh, based on its size, you know, put it out as a meal, that it might help. be very difficult to capture the fox and bring it in to have it treated. Uh, I would say that that would probably stress it out so much. But mm-hmm. that's off-label. I didn't say it. No, it's, <laughs> it's off, it is off-label. And uh, I would suggest that that might be the only way that this fox could be treated. And I it's okay seen, if the other foxes eat that, yeah, too, because right. they're getting exposed well, to Well, fleas it. and ticks. Yeah. It, yeah. But... I have seen foxes exactly like, and Gilbert, you may have as well. They have maybe a little hair on their tail, a little on a rough, and they're pretty naked other than that. Mm -hmm. It's not just a shed, probably a parasite. Okay. 
Uh, also, Libby, another email asks about the synchronized fireflies and, and what type of uh, time of year we might be seeing them. Yes, soon. We're, I'm looking every night, and I would love to have listeners. Thank you for writing that email, whoever did. I would love to have listeners let us know. Uh, we have uh, one watcher who is outside of New Orleans, and he's got them big time right now. So if you live on the coast, they should start. we trying to keep a map. And uh, there's a film crew coming in a couple of weeks to film them, so hopefully we're going to produce plenty of synchronous fireflies. So if you would like to report your fireflies, and um, I I don't have to share the information with anybody. We can just map it if you would rather it not be known. But uh, please let me know. And I guess, again, it will be, as we say, dark, dark before they come out. So 8.30, 9 o'clock. They'll be in a place that uh, they they avoid any kind of light. So you're going to have to cut your flashlight out. What I do is walk into the woods away from any light sources, and uh, where it's very dark with a you know with a low flashlight, but try not to look at it too much so my eyes adjust. And then I just completely cut it off and stand there, and it'll take a few minutes, and then you can start seeing them. And um, I haven't seen the synchronous ones yet. They're usually going to be, they're called snappy sinks because they blink very fast. And the treetops are out right now, and they blink slower, and they're a brighter light. And they will be out earlier, and they w- they can be, you know, close to a porch light. Not terribly close, but, you know, within sight of one. But these snappy sinks prefer to be in the very dark. They They blink fast. And uh, when you have very many of them, they all synchronize and start blinking together. It's like a throbbing kind of um, Mm -hmm. sensation when they really get going. And they tend to be maybe three to four feet off of the ground. So it's um, it's real fun because there'll be like a layer there about Hmm. three feet off the ground. And um, it's it's definitely fun and they're very rare species if you do have them i would say protect them by not doing a lot of disturbance of the leaf litter in the area where you've seen them because they come up from the leaf litter they've been all year very close to the surface there Mm -hmm. and um just waiting for their time to emerge and they they live for only about two weeks and of course mate and then go back to the leaf litter and start again next year so um if you do see them you're once you see the first one as long as four weeks may be about the maximum, but usually each one lives about two weeks. If they're um, disrupted Mm -hmm. by a light and they lose their rhythm, how long does it take them to regain that Um, synchronous? Just a few minutes. Uh Yeah, Mm -hmm. so if you'll cut the lights off, and now I I cut off, I don't have a lot of outdoor lights anyway, but I'll cut the porch lights off and then, you know, walk into the dark part and Mm. wait a while and watch them. And... uh, of course, they're not in mowed grass, so they're they're in places where there's leaf litter, and um, it doesn't have to be deep woods. It's not very old woods behind my house where mm-hmm. they are, and uh, they don't they don't like to go underwater every year though. So it'll be in in a little bit of an upland, 
But it's in areas that are pretty much ca- uh, canopied over? Yes, canopied over. Yeah. Yes, they do want to. It's it's interesting. Even when the full moon comes out, they avoid, they'll get in the shady areas right. out yeah. of the moonlight yeah. even. They're, they're, they, I guess you've got very little energy. You've only got two weeks to make. <laughs> they're, uh, they're serious about being in the dark and, and doing their... T- if you really start watching, particularly at the beginning of the season, that when one starts blinking... And the mate's going to come over and find them, and you can see them get together and stop blinking there. But uh, when they found each other, they're happy. You know, they don't have to blink anymore. I'm through advertising for the night. The heart skips a beat for a minute. Yes, yeah, yeah. All right, uh, we're just out of out of time. Just to uh, Ron remind remind folks that coming up this weekend at Terra Wildlife, it is their spring birding weekend. And if you need to find out more about what Terra Wildlife has to offer, you can go to their website, which is Terra Wildlife T A R A Wildlife dot com. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by Wildlife Mississippi, a statewide organization celebrating more than 20 years of conserving Mississippi's lands, waters, and wildlife. And from contributions from listeners like you. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Michelle McAdoo. So for Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest Gilbert Rose, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned up next at 10. It's MPB's Season Pass, followed by Southern Remedy. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.